Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. the Hit Like a Girl podcast. This is High Tea with Grace. I'm very excited to introduce you today to Dr. Talia. She is the author of Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Talia. Are you kidding? It's my pleasure, Grace. Uh, I just always love any chance I get to talk with you. You are an inspiring woman. I text one to no one. (laughs) I love it. So tell me a little bit about yourself and your background. Of course. So I'm a psychologist, not the the therapy kind of psychologist. I'm a social psychologist. I have a bachelor's, master's degree and PhD in social psychology. I did my postdoctoral work at Princeton University, which was amazing, with Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman, which was also amazing. And we did a lot of work on happiness together, but it sort of veered away because I wanted to do medical decision making. I felt this was more important, more impactful. This was a place where I could make a bigger difference. And so sort of medical decision making hijacked my life and has not let me go since. Um, I taught at Wharton, I taught consumer behavior, and I tried to bring in some medical decision-making there too, because we are health, some of us are healthcare consumers, some of us cater to healthcare consumers. So that was, that was really important. Um, I do a lot of research on medical decision-making and I do a lot of consulting in it as well. Again, because I feel this is a place where if you know something that can make a difference, you really must go out in the world and, and do it. Um, I'm a full professor right now and I'm a visiting researcher at the University of Cambridge. 
You are magnificent. This is amazing to have you on today. I feel really honored to have you here talking about your book and just some of the things that you've been thinking about and learning through all the research that you've been doing all these years. So tell me, what's the preface of your book? Who is your target audience? First of all, your life depends on it. What you can do to make better choices about your health by Dr. Taya Myron Schatz. And again, just, you know, in case you didn't get a good enough look. Um, the Probably sure book, to include a link and in, a link to it in here right below. Amazing. And there'll be a quiz, you guys. So you'd better. Um, the premise is that we all have to make, we all just don't, we all make medical decisions and health decisions all the time. It goes from brushing your teeth, flossing, to having surgery, to taking medication, to not taking medication, to being in rehab, to, you know, any, any and everything, all the way to people dying. I mean, which sometimes happens. I mean, that's, let's face it. So there's a lot of decision-making that goes on there. And I thought I would be writing a book for patients um, on how do we feel when we're patients, what sort of decisions we have to make and how we can do it better. Then I realized, yes, of course, patients are a major target audience, but they speak with physicians and the physicians are very well-intentioned and they're great professionals and they come to work in order to help their patients. But they're not really equipped to have conversations on issues that are sometimes more emotional, more bewildering. Um, they are not trained either in conveying information in a very clear way. And there they are, these two these two people, one is really scared, in pain, anxious. The other really wants to help, but has seven minutes on the dot and little training. So I wrote something for patients as well as for physicians, but then I thought, but wait, this interaction doesn't take place in empty space. It takes place within a healthcare organization. So I need to talk to healthcare executives as well because they also want to make it better, for sure, because this is their mission and because this is their organization's mission and because it's also good for the ROI. And they made sure that whenever I write about outcomes that are good for patients and physicians emotionally and health-wise, I also mention the bottom line because it's not a thing that an organization should do to be nice. They're not doing anyone a favor. They're helping everybody. They're helping themselves as an organization, their reputation, satisfaction, uh, lowering readmission rates, lowering lawsuit rates, all of the above, increasing revenue, great, right? Everybody wants that, increasing mm -hmm. physician satisfaction, retention, mm -hmm. and for patients, a lot of good outcomes there too. And you know, along the way, there's another target audience. It's a bit smaller, it's very focused. And let me give you a hint who it is. It's in the name of your podcast. Hmm. Mm. The hit community? The hit community. Exactly. Healthcare IT. Because they too are people who want to make a difference, who want to create and, and do create amazing products to improve health. But they need the psychological component, and there's a lot of it. And that's 
Truly. Right. And you're right. It's it's the psychological component that people don't realize. It's this people in pain, um, providers making decisions, people creating solutions for these patients in pain and these providers offering solutions to help save lives. Um, And it's really kind of a mixture of all of these people coming in together to all coming together as a community to help make the best decision possible. Um, I remember when your book came out, there was a little controversy. So are you saying patients can't make their own decisions? And it was like, no. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can I can do better. I'll show yes. you. Yes. So ta-da. I said I would frame this. I haven't yet, but it's a clip. <laughs> wow. Right? I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal. It doesn't happen every day. So Mm -hmm. a brag moment. It's wonderful to brag to with uh, such a good friend like you. I'm here for it. I know. So the title, which I didn't give, was Can Patients Decide Their Own Care? Question mark. Mm -hmm. Question mark. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people were very angry, saying, of course, they can. And who are you to question us, et cetera? And there were a lot of comments. There was a lot of controversy. There was a lot of action going on around that Wall Street Journal article, I think because sometimes people feel that they should have the capacity to decide. Yeah. Regardless of their medical condition. And you know what? Some of us can, and that's fantastic. But really not everyone, not all the time. And I think it's unfair to expect people to be top ship shape form on top of everything possible when they're patients. It just doesn't happen. And how do I know? because I interviewed a lot of physicians Mm. on their experiences as patients. And guess what? They were saying things like, the moment I leave the doctor's office, I forget everything they told me. And I did, I just had a book launch in the UK, in Cambridge, with Sir David Spiegelhalter, who's an amazing statistician, a risk communicator and a friend and a great guy. And he had also been ill. And he said that when he leaves the doctor's office, he forgets everything. Now, it's one of the brightest persons, people I've ever met. And it just happens. So we need to plan for that. Yes, plan for that. And so that's kind of what you want your patients to take away from the book is that plan for maybe not being in the best situation to be able to make the right decision and maybe providers plan for your patients maybe not being in the best situation they may forget everything you just said so is that kind of what you talk about (laughs) exactly so i say you're a healthcare consumer you have a ton of choice the power's in your hands great or is it great because we mess it up i mean we don't adhere to medication we over medicate we use opiates too much, as we all know, sadly, mm-hmm. uh, we can vaccinate against a disease that might kill us, but we choose not to for various reasons. We do all kinds of things out of our own free will, sometimes to our benefit and sometimes to our detriment. So how can we help? And I talked about the main barriers. The first one is our relationship with our doctor. And you can say, come on, this is this is health IT. Why are we talking about relationship. And the reason is, first of all, it matters immensely. And second, because I think it also matters in technology. In fact, I think it matters a lot in technology. You have to feel a connection, even if it's a device. Yes. If you feel a connection, you'll adhere. You'll continue using it. You'll like it. 
You'll care about it. I had a pedometer. I had a relationship with my pedometer for the love of God. I, I had to delete the app. I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> What's happening? I'm like walking in my bedroom at blank. I'm like, no, Sadak will be angry because I didn't. I'm like, no, no, you're a crazy girl. But it's important for us to feel that somebody cares about us. If we can have it from our physician, that's amazing. But we always need it. And that's something that I've been doing for a long time. And I've been consulting really wonderful teams of engineers. And they would create a beautiful platform for adherence and medication. And it's very technical. It's like, take this, take that, your marching orders. Great, right? So there was something missing. So what was missing? The relationship is one thing. Mm -hmm. It's not there. Why should I care? It's like, who is this platform ordering me about? You know, I don't let it mind its own business. I don't care. I don't care about it. And it doesn't care about me. And that's the first thing. The second thing is health literacy. Is do we understand? And actually a study came out today with, always there's a controversial title, right? It has to be provocative. So yes. it's that, Otherwise, it's not sexy, and God forbid it wouldn't be sexy, even if we're talking about healthcare IT, right? So it said rich people make more of their devices, like they understand their devices better, they use digital health more than poor people. So I don't think it's really about whether you're rich or poor, I think it's more about whether you're educated, whether you're confident and you feel that you can handle this device. And the sad truth is that none of this is trivial. So basically you can create something really good and you put it out there. And mm -hmm. some people will be able to use it on their own and some people won't. And if you make the mistake of saying, hey, it's intuitive, it's like, <laughs> well, maybe to you, maybe to you. Is it really intuitive to everyone? Does everyone understand? Does everyone know what you're talking about? Not because they're the great unwashed, because they're people like you, like me, confused or you know what maybe uneducated and they also deserve to be healthy so basically if the first barrier is relationship the second is health literacy and understanding and that and those are things with with relationship i always try to build in the mechanisms to create mm -hmm. trust and that can be trust to trust the payment model enough that you would put in your credit card info because if you don't then the new model isn't working and it's a stupid model, right? Because you go to the doctor's office and your card isn't working and you're mad as hell and you're mad at, mad at HR that gave it to you and you're mad at the company. It's your fault, but it's also their fault because they didn't explain to you why you have to do it. They didn't make you want to do it. They didn't create that relationship. It's so true that technology can either build and 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 grow your relationship with your physician, with your relationship with your own health. But if you don't know how to use it and you can't use it because you don't speak the right language or you don't have the education that would teach you, it's going to actually potentially worsen or stagnate your health and 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 the potential for for future growth. It's very fascinating um, thought here. Exactly, or just alienate you. Mm. And I think, to be honest, I think you and I and your listeners were very privileged. We may have gotten there through hard work. I know I have for sure. Um, I have a feeling you did too. Um, but 
at this point, we are confident enough to say, I don't know. And I mentioned, I was, I knew I was meeting with you today and I had a ring light. I didn't know how to put it together. And I was like, I'm meeting Grace. She always looks amazing. There are standards standards to be met. So I was like, I have this ring light. I can't, can't put it together. What the heck? I have all these pieces. I went back to the store. I went with her. It's not far. I walked carrying the ring light. Like I have a friend. We're going on a walk together. Um, But I felt confident enough to walk in there and say, I can't put it together. And actually, that's a mark of confidence. I didn't think, oh, my God, you know, that's just me. And maybe I'm dumb and maybe it's not for me. I'll never have a ring light because I can't put it together. And, you know, what can I do? No, I felt confident Mm -hmm. enough and entitled enough in in, I'm going to make this ring light work that I could have. And asking for help, actually, and for clarifications is something that you need a sense of standing in the world in order to do. So if someone who creates apps, technology, or interacts with physicians says, well, you know, I built it. If they don't understand, they'll ask. They might be wrong. They might be wrong. It's almost like they should build that in to it. Understanding, I need to know that they will not know how to use this. I need to know that they will not know anything about this disease diagnosis. I need to make sure that I empower them to ask questions and let them know that that's empowering them to make their own decisions. Is that kind of what you're saying? I love that you're saying that. I love that. Um, Because that Wall Street Journal, the title that I gave was not explaining to patients is abandonment, masquerading as empowerment. So if I say, you can decide, that's baloney. You can decide on what meal to have because you've had meals before and you know what you like. But if I just say, oh, here's a bunch of medical treatments. Why don't you choose now? Really based on what? Am I helping you or am I just making you pseudo responsible for something where you don't really feel that you can take care of it? And abandonment is absolutely what patients are saying they feel when they get their rare disease diagnosis, when they are given a diagnosis of any kind, when they're told whatever next step they needed to do to improve their health. It is exactly the word that they are constant, that abandonment, lonely, um, quite a few different regular terminologies that they use to explain this. And so it's like, how many times do they have to say that for us to finally say, oh, you're feeling abandoned. We should probably fix that. I know. I know. And the thing is, you feeling abandoned doesn't stop there. It's not like, well, you felt abandoned. What a bummer for you, but I don't care. So you felt abandoned. So let's see what what happened. Mm -hmm. Did you go online and look for anything and everything and found some wacky things that are not necessarily good for you? Um, Did you go see three other doctors? Did you go see your doctor again and again? What did you do? Because for sure you would do something to remove that feeling. Or maybe you just said, well, I'm just going to ignore this disease altogether because I don't know how to handle it. And it's going to come back and bite you, obviously. So what I try to show repeatedly is that this sense of abandonment exists across the board and really should be taken care of. I love, love, love that you say, 
you have to empower the patient. It doesn't just happen of its own. Truly, truly. So, you know, it's you have a wonderfully written book. Everybody, the link will be right below this video. Um, but if you could narrow it down and name the number one recommendation that you would have for people to make better choices about their health, what would that recommendation be? To not be shy. If I had to put it in a very short sentence, and I'll elaborate. So basically to ask questions, to ask for clarifications, to ask your doctor to write things down for you, including your diagnosis, which can be complicated. I sat with a physician, I interviewed her. She told me various things from her own experience as a physician and as a patient. I wrote everything down very diligently. And the only thing I did not misspell was tuberculosis. Everything else I got wrong. Every single term, but I have, I'm, I'm, you know, that's the truth. That, yeah. I'm a professor, right? But those are conditions I'd never heard of. I was, I didn't heed my own advice. I didn't say, but wait, Tessa, tell me, you know, how exactly would you spell that? We were talking, our time was limited. So I come back home with this bunch of letters that mean nothing, but I had enough to Google. I could sort of figure out what was going on. And that's one piece of advice to patients to, to ask and have their doctor write it down. Another piece of advice that I'm very proud of is to ask about what matters. And what this means is a set of questions, very simple. What are the risks of everything you're offered? It's medication, procedure, et cetera. What are the benefits? And what are the alternatives, right? Mm -hmm. So talk about empowerment. Why is this empowering? Because we're so brought up and used to defer to the doctor. If It's as if when you ask about an alternative, you're questioning your doctor. You're dissing them. You're not yeah. sure. Them. You're like, no, this is not even it. This would be a part of the process is making sure that you're getting this full information and you understand why it matters to you and, and, and all the options. Exactly. Exactly. So if you're trained in asking risks, benefits, alternatives, you'll do it and you'll ask and maybe you'll be surprised. You might. You might be surprised to find out that instead of surgery, you could have physical therapy or watchful waiting or not. Maybe there's no alternative. That's also good to know. Mm -hmm. It's definitely something you have to find out. And it's definitely something that empowers you for real, because then you are making an informed choice, not in the lip service sort of informed way, you know, give you a form like, could you sign this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could sign it, but that's not informed. That's like you signing something that you haven't read, it's really being informed. And when we're more informed, we're more likely to adhere and we're more likely to just feel that we own the treatment and it's better suited to our values, to our lifestyle, to who we are. Yes, truly. That is very empowering as a patient myself who experienced quite a few misdiagnoses when I was in a personal time of chronic pain. I wish I had known this back then. I'm looking back and I'm like, oh, oh, I should have asked what matters. <laughs> not exactly. just give me the information, not just give me my diagnosis and the name for it, because that gives peace in many ways, because sometimes answers, being in the middle of not having answers yeah. is kind of like a purgatory of sorts. So you're searching for answers and you're grabbing for answers. So when they give you a diagnosis or a name, you say, yes, okay, great. That's fantastic. I finally have a name for this. But I wish that I had asked that 
what matters here and what are the other alternatives and options and really it being more informed would have been so much more empowering than to have to suffer through a misdiagnosis and have chronic pain for another year. No, <laughs> you know? no, no, that's just really bad. And, and, and these things happen and they happen all the time. Some of them will still happen, but I do want patients to have some tools. And the reason why these tools sound so simple is because I want you to use them when you're in pain, when you're suffering, I want them to be taught across the board. And it's easy when they're simple. They're easy to remember. I used it once when I went to repair my car. Mm -hmm. I write about it in the book. There was something, someone was blinking. So I go and I ask what's going on. And they say, oh, we can fix it. It's going to be $400. I'm like, but what is it? What does it do? So it's the, it's that meter that tells me how many gallons I'm doing per mile, how many miles per gallon. Like, Okay, I think, you know, I, I think I can kind of live without it. I don't know. Is there an alternative? Do I have to fix it for $400? I mean, not that it's that much money, but it's not that important to me. And they say, oh, we could just turn it off for 50 bucks. Okay, let's do that. And we did. Now, it's great because they didn't, they didn't lie to me. When I asked the question, they gave me the answer. Had I not asked it, though, they would have just withheld the information and mm-hmm. made more money. Yeah, true. They would have made more money. And then also they probably would have just thought that, oh, this is the easiest decision. One, well, it makes me more money. But then also she doesn't have to think through all these other decisions. So just give her this one. Right, right. And and I love the car example because I have a hybrid car. And honestly, when I pick up, when I lift the hood, I look at it, I'm like, I'm on the moon. Mm. This is new land, new territory. I have no idea what to do here. Like nothing. So they didn't give me any technical information. They didn't say we're going to do the whatever, remove the idea. Nothing. There was no, not a single technical term, but they explained and I understood. Mm. And I made a decision, which was informed and I'm happy with. So I think that's, a great example where you can talk to anybody. And at that point, my level of ignorance with uh, auto mechanics, that suited me just fine. They didn't hide behind, oh dear, where the, the, you know, when they say these long words that you don't understand and you're like mm-hmm. nodding because you're embarrassed. No, no. And they crazy. talk through the techniques and what they're going to have to do. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So there was none of that. That was just, We'll, we'll turn it off. Okay, done. Done. And I think it should be the same way with health. Maybe not as fast, maybe not as carefree, but simple. Mm. The way you can understand it, where you can go home and talk to your loved ones and say, I decided to do A, B, and C because. And there's an art to that. There's an art to that in person. There's an art to that when you're doing things digitally and you have to create layers. So that level of explanation that I got regarding my car, you know, it doesn't fly when you're having your leg amputated, God forbid, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that wouldn't be enough. Oh, we're chopping it off. Okay, where do I sign? Nobody's going to go with that. But you have to explain, I hope, but you have to explain <laughs> things. You know, I, would, I would put it to the test. You have to explain things in a simple way. Mm-hmm. Very much so also when it's digital. 
but to allow for tears, to allow for people to dig down deeper in case they know more about hybrid cars than I do or about human body than the next person. And they want to dig in. So you don't have to jump at them with all the information with the most recent uh, article from the, the Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine but make it available in case they want it. Nobody wants to feel like you're hiding information from them. Yes, it's interesting you're talking about the tiers. Are tiers the level of knowledge someone has on a certain topic? Yeah, I think so. The level of knowledge that you can make available. Definitely. Mm -hmm. The level of and you know the level of knowledge that they're interested in having. And that can be very different to different people. Um, I created a scale once, we call it the deliberate scale. It's like deliberate and rate. It's very it's like an academic pun right there. Um, it's one of my best-selling articles. Um, <laughs> of course, you don't, you don't make money off of articles. For psychology but, today. <laughs> uh, no, we, where did we publish it? I think it was patient education and counseling. So oh, it's great. Really, it's literally, you don't, make, you don't make a penny, but it doesn't matter. It's very important. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that we want to rate the decision-making process, just mm -hmm. the process, not the outcome. Let's see how you got there. And it's important for patients. It's also important to whoever is giving patients information. And I'm mentioning it because oftentimes when you want to walk a patient through a decision, there are multiple facets to this decision. Some are cognitive, some are emotional. We really try to include everything. And in terms of knowledge, we said, it's actually very paternalistic. It's kind of condescending to say, this is what you need to know. Like, very true. Very true. It makes someone like, okay, whatever you say, you know, it's like, I guess I don't have a choice here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What if I want to know more? Mm -hmm. What if I want to know less? What if I decide to say, doctor, you know what? Give me the basics. And that's fine. I don't care. I don't need to know. I'm going to be like Dr. Talia Myron Schatz when she went to get her car fixed. She knew very little and that was fine for her. So we're not being paternalistic in the sense that this is what you need to know, but we are helping patients in the sense that we say you should know as much as you want to know. Mm -hmm. be available. And that you have the power to articulate that to your healthcare professionals and the people managing your care. Yes. And they should know. And they should know. Basically, it's a it's a systems issue. It's a much bigger issue than doctor patient conversation. Wow. So wow. Training of how materials are built. Mm -hmm. of your discharge form when you go home, what does it look like, of your medication brochure. There's a lot that goes in there of the instructions that the doctor gives you when they say, we'll take this and do whatever. So do they explain what this does, mm -hmm. how long it will take to work, what happens should you decide you don't need it anymore. Oftentimes it's a big mistake and you do need it. Mm -hmm. um, do they explain all of these things and in a way that everyone can understand? Wow. That's very impactful and, and, and very thoughtful. Uh, it's very clear that you wrote this book based on your years of psychology research. And it's, it'll be impactful for patients, providers, 
anyone in digital health looking to learn more about the healthcare decision-making process. Um, so it's clear you wrote, you wrote about, you know, using your industry experience. Um, can you give an example of why it matters? Of course. So an example from the first job, the first uh, gig I had, it was a consulting gig for a company that built a dashboard to show you where your health lies. And they showed me their dashboard and it went from green through orange to red. Some of them had been pilots. So it made a ton of sense to them. I looked at it, it was like, oh my God, this is a cockpit. There are six clocks here. What am I looking at? I'm getting dizzy. And I, I said, this was clearly built by engineers. And the CEO later told me he hadn't slept for a month after I'd said that because he realized he had a problem because this was not to be used solely by engineers. It was just to be used by regular humans. So we did a, a number of things. One of them was to simplify the interface a lot yeah, on a cognitive level to just make it really easy for people to understand where they are and what they need to improve. And that's huge, huge, huge. I don't, I don't know how much we went into what you need to improve. I think this is the next step with digital health. I think it doesn't really capture everything that we do and therefore what we need to improve. Like it can capture our blood pressure or our BMI, but how did we get there is a different question. And that's tricky. That's like the next step of AI. I spoke about it in one of my webinars and we had the head of uh, um, health from IBM Research actually in the audience and she talked about, she said, yes, we're not there yet. So I think that's really big. And so that's the cognitive element, the behavioral element. And then you have the emotional element of what do you do with people? What, what if you are in the red zone? What does it mean? So basically, is this system now telling you that you suck? You probably hate it if it does, right? I know. So if, you, if a machine told me that I suck, then I probably wouldn't use that machine anymore. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So what do you do? How do you give people information that's clear, that's motivating, and that's also respectful of their emotions? It doesn't mm -hmm. sugarcoat, but it's respectful. Mm -hmm. That's honest, but also respectful. Very yes. interesting. Yes, mm -hmm. and there's work from behavioral economics on how to do that, on what to do. When people have a wonderful streak, and then, well, they go to their cousin's wedding, and they break the streak. Now what? Now what? Like, do they just store the device away because they broke the streak or how do they how do they get back? Um, those are really important questions. You know, I think we're we're approaching Christmas. I don't know when the episode will come up, um, but we're approaching Christmas and I predict, you know, I my little crystal ball. I can see a lot of devices being bought, a lot of watches, fitness watches, I'm not going to name names. Mm -hmm. But there, there will be gadgets galore. And by Valentine's Day, many of them will be feeling very unloved because they will not be used. Very true. <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why? So why? Mm -hmm. right? If only they could tell us the story. If only their users could tell us the story. So was it cognitive? Like, did they, I didn't understand what was going on. Was it behavioral? I didn't know what to do. Was it emotional? This was pissing me off. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had a, a judge on my on my hand. on my arm at all time telling me I'm not doing enough. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. It's like go away. Go, you know, let's 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 put you in a drawer and never open the drawer again. 
So all these elements need to be taken into account. And I think people creating digital technology, healthcare technology, don't always take all these issues into account. Well, that's why they call me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's vital. It's vital because you're working with people. You're talking to people. You want them to really be able to use on multiple levels the whatever it is you're catering to. out the behavioral economics piece of this is really not, it's not putting the whole puzzle together. <laughs> it's leaving a huge hole. Will people actually use this? And is this making them uh, use it more often? Will they use it? You know, will they like how it's being used? It could be a small change that's impacted that impacts the ability for something to be used regularly in someone's everyday life. It's it's pretty wild that people uh, don't realize sometimes that how much that impacts uh, should be included in the innovation process. I want to give you an example from people who are physicians. So in England, they have something that they call it a behavioral change unit. They used to call it the nudge unit. I think everybody still calls it the nudge unit. And they realized that when people are ventilated, that was pre-COVID, but still, sorry, when people are ventilated, they're likely to develop a pneumonia. And you know what prevents the pneumonia? Mouthwash. A specific kind of mouthwash, right? Unbelievable. But obviously, when someone's ventilated, they can't run to the store and get the mouthwash. They don't even know about it. The doctor has to order it. And about 50% of the doctors would order it, which means the other 50% of doctors wouldn't order it and their patients wouldn't get it and they could develop pneumonia. Yikes. So the nudge unit realized that. And what they did was they added a check in the order form. Wow. And now when you have a ventilated patient, you get an order form and the mouthwash is pre-ordered. And that's wow. beautiful. Exactly. So now 90% of doctors order that. Yes. That's like 40% more patients don't have to have pneumonia because it seems like such a small change, but behaviorally it made such a ginormous impact. Exactly. Exactly. It's like you need to understand the setting. So these physicians are swamped. They're overworked. Maybe mouthwash isn't top of mind for them. They forget. Mm -hmm. Bad, right? It's bad. Truly. (laughs) People just get pneumonia and die. No, we can change this. Let's do something. Let's think about how physicians work. (laughs) They are busy. They if they're in this unit, they're nonstop. Like giving them notifications like this or a quick, you know, note can change their behavior and help them stop for a second and and do this life-saving activity. Exactly. And you have to understand that they're also under alert fatigue and mm-hmm. their yeah. circumstances are, are very demanding. Their situation True. is so hard. Mm-hmm. So you need to cater to that rather than just say, well, the physicians should. Yeah, they should. OK, but it's not happening. Mm-hmm. Not because of, of because we're all human and we can only exactly. uh, do so much. <laughs> exactly. And the beauty mm-hmm. of it is that it's very much along the lines of what we call libertarian paternalism, the big word. Mm-hmm. So the paternalism means it's like someone is like amiably puts a hand on your shoulder and says, 
you should really order mouthwash. That's the paternalism because it's good for your patient. That's just mm-hmm. good for everybody. Let's do that. The libertarian part means if you don't want to, if you're the doctor and you don't want to, or you think it's unsuitable for your patient, you can uncheck the box. Yes. That's it's like it. a tool in your toolbox. Exactly. Not telling you what to do. It's giving you the freedom to make that choice. Yes. It's guiding you in the right direction, but it also says, but you know what? It's your choice and you're the professional and I respect that. That's the type of things that people like me do. It's just one instrument in our, in our toolbox. And it makes a huge difference and it doesn't necessarily, which I love, it doesn't necessarily involve spending a lot of money it, in fact, can save a lot of money. It's just, it's really smart. It involves understanding the medical aspects and the behavioral aspects and figuring out the barrier. What's preventing the best type of medicine from happening? Is it a behavioral issue? And in many cases, it is. People don't adhere to medication. People get infected. People don't, you know, follow doctor's orders on lifestyle obesity arises all of these things to the degree that we can help and understand people's barriers that's fantastic it really is that's where psychology and behavioral economics can come well that's fantastic thank you so much for for coming here today and telling us all about this exciting part of the industry that you know quite a few might not even know about yet so just to dive into you personally Tell me a little bit about, you know, what are things that you do to uh, personally overcome challenges and keep moving and keep going uh, with this research and with the work that you're doing, but also just from a personal standpoint? Right. Um, I swim almost every day. Then I go to the sauna. I'm like, yes, I just want to be hot and and happy. Yes. And just swimming too. And, and almost the danger, I wonder if associated with like that whole keeping yourself afloat and the physical, physical activity. It's amazing. Terrific. It's really great. Um, And I do yoga. So sometimes it's challenging, very adherent though. I'm like very conscientious. I put on Sean Vig. He's my favorite yoga coach. Uh, there's also five parts yoga. So I'm like, no, no need to fight you guys. Um, and I put in a video and I follow it. So I'm very adherent. I'm like the opposite of the patient who doesn't adhere. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's a personality trait and you have to build in for that. Um, I really love what I do. That's the truth. I love doing research. I love consulting. I love it. It's like, here's a challenge. Here's a new place where I've never been before. Here's a new company I've never met. And they do this amazing thing. Oh my God, it's amazing. Wait, I can help them. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. this is really cool. This is actually cool and fun and exciting. And I, and I love doing that every single time. So, so that's fun. And I love being with my family. So that's obviously a big part of it. And my kids are older now. So whenever they want to hang with me, I'm like, oh my God, it's the best part. Yes, of let's day. hang. <laughs> exactly. They're exactly. like, really they're actual people, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, so that's fun. And that's important. And that's easy to lose, to lose sight of when you're working and you're driven, but it's important not to lose sight of that. Actually. Yeah. Stay, keep in sight what's important in life and keep yourself healthy so you can keep moving on and doing what you love to do. Yeah. And nourished emotionally as well is very important. 
-hmm. You know, you, you have to practice what you preach, right? So I talk about care and the emotional element of health and digital health, et cetera. Their life has an emotional element too. Yes. Mm -hmm. So before I forget, tell us what tea you brought with you today. So cheers. I brought mint. It's just fresh. and wonderful. I have mint tea too. It's We're just, it's really, it's great when you're working. It clears your mind. It gives you a little oomph. It does. And I got this beautiful mug from someone with whom I did some uh, business training. And she sent it to me. She mailed it to me. That was so it's beautiful. It feels stunning. so nice. Is it glass yeah. or ceramic? Ceramics. It's ceramics. ceramics. It's made. And it was this personal touch. So you could be cynical and say, well, you paid her or whatever. It didn't cost as much. Uh, as you had paid her, it doesn't matter. It's going this extra mile that whenever I see this beautiful mug, I smile and I'm happy and I think of her. That's just another example of how emotions play a part in our lives. Truly. So to finish off this conversation, right, where can our listeners find you online? Absolutely. So my name is Talia with a Y, T-A-L-Y-A, M-I-R-O-N-S-H-A-T-Z. And my email is Talia Myron Schatz, just my name, at gmail.com. And I have a website, taliamyronschatz.com, with a lot of information on the book, on my work, wonderful resources, webinars I did on nudges, on health inequities, on so many important things and great resources. I have fan clubs in certain companies. That's really cool. Um, who watch the voices really like it's. It's nice to watch the webinars and, and I like it because I'm happy to give, to put this knowledge out in the world and have, have it make a difference, be it through consulting, through public speaking, through the book, through the website, bring it on and enjoy it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you on. It's always a pleasure being with you, Grace. Always. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us, folks. Please be sure to check out the Hit Like a Girl website and YouTube page for more amazing esteemed guests just like Dr. Talia. Have a great day, everyone, and cheers. Like a Girl Media is more than a media network. It's a community. We want to meet you and amplify your voice and the voices of outstanding women innovating in healthcare. Interested in starting your own podcast or hosting an event near you? Connect with us online or in person. We're here to support and empower you. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird, Inc. CMS's Merit-Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.